And uh, we're going to continue in our service today. So Aloha Mission Church, what a joy it is to... uh, what a joy it is to return back from vacation. Have you guys noticed that I've been gone for three weeks? <laughs> Some of you are like, you were gone? I didn't even notice that. But uh, no, I just returned back from being gone for three weeks. The first week that I was gone, it was for the business of the church. Rochelle and I were delegates to the General Assembly, and we had a great week in Indianapolis uh, with the global church. 10,000 people worshiping together and doing the work of the church. And then Two weeks after that, Rochelle and I celebrated our 30th anniversary. I know, I don't look like I've been married 30 years. Oh, no. But, uh, but we went to, uh, to Europe, to, um, to Budapest, Hungary, and through Austria, and then we ended up in Munich, and then, then we flew home, and we were here last Sunday. And was it last Sunday amazing with the, the VBS and the Hawaii uh, students here? By the way, breathe a prayer for all of the people at NYC, Nazarene Youth Conference, as the, they wrap up NYC this today, and then they'll be traveling home, and, and so they would appreciate our prayers. I also want to uh, just say a special thanks to Carlene Morgan and Pastor Paul and Eric, who preached while I was gone, and I watched all of the services. What, didn't they do great? It was so, so good. It's like, the, yeah, amen. The church didn't skip a beat, and I was just so amazed, and and so if you were here two weeks ago, Eric, our director of youth ministries, uh, he, he stood up here, preached his first sermon, and I thought he did a great job. He, yeah, he did. He did. He's with our teens at NYC. And, and, and Eric talked about being at General Assembly. I don't know if you remember his message. But at General Assembly, the thing that was so impactful for him because of the message that he even preached was about... How Reverend Daniel Abdul Kareem Gomez, who is the, um, the, the missions director of all of Africa, had his name be nominated by over 200 people to be the next general superintendent of the Church of the Nazarene. It's the highest elected office in the church that, that, that we have. It's a great honor to be nominated and to be voted on that way. And, but after the second ballot, with over 200 votes cast in his favor, um, Reverend Gomez came up to the microphone and he said, I, I would like my name to be removed from, uh, from being general superintendent. And so he, he withdrew his name for the highest office in our church. And, and that impressed upon Eric so much because Eric's message uh, two Sundays ago what was, was discerning God's call of, of, of going or waiting or staying. I don't know if you remember that message, but it was so good. And you should go back and watch it. What Eric didn't tell you is that my name was also put forward to be a general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. I had votes. And, and, and I wasn't too far behind Reverend Gomez. He had over 200. I topped off at three. <laughs> but the momentum was moving my way. <laughs> but just like Reverend Gomez, I want you to know that God has called me here to stay. Right? I'm not going anywhere. And even if I was elected general superintendent, I'd say thank you, but no thank you. 
because I know that this is where God has called me to serve. So with that, we're going to continue in our sermon series that we've been going through called Our Ecclesiology. And right after Easter, we began this sermon series to talk about the ecclesiology of, of who we are. That word ecclesiology, for some, it's a, it's a big word, it's a theological word. And basically, the word ecclesiology is the study of the theology of the church. Who are we, right? And what are we to do as the church? How, how do we live our lives as the church? We began this sermon series with some really important foundational ecclesiological understandings of what the church is. The church is not a building. The church is people. The ecclesia is the called out ones. We are the ecclesia, called out of the world to come into the sanctuary of God. This building that we meet in is called the sanctuary. This is not the church. You are the church. I am the church. And not only is that foundational and important, but also to understand that, that the church, the body of Christ, is not an organization Rather, I believe we're more of an organism because we're living. We're living and breathing. And, and if we are an organism, then the healthier we are, the better we will grow. And so I really am serious about focusing on what it means to make the church healthy. Because every organism that is healthy will grow naturally. Many of them will reproduce itself. And my prayer one day is through a good, solid ecclesiology and understanding of who we are as the church, we will be able to reproduce ourselves again and again and again. We'll plant new churches with our young people that are growing up who are called into the ministry because we are a healthy, growing organism of a church. And today, what I want to focus in on is an area of the church that Jesus was very passionate about. In fact, this area of the church, of, of understanding the ecclesiology of who we are and what we are to do and how we are to live, is so important to Jesus. This, this part of being the church is so important to Jesus that when the church got it wrong in the Bible, when the church got it wrong, Jesus completely lost his cool. Like, he got angry, visibly upset when the church got it wrong. He was so angry that while he was in the temple, he flipped over tables and cleared people out of the temple. He got so upset. And some of you who have read the Bible already know the incidents that I am speaking of, right? When Jesus cleared out the temple. And amazingly, this happened twice in the Bible. The first one was early on in the ministry of Jesus. And then the second time it happened was at the end of his ministry. And we're going to look at both of those scriptures. I'm going to give you some context so we understand what was happening and why Jesus got so upset. And both of them, 
deal with the very space that we are sharing right now, the temple or our sanctuary. And, and it's important for us to understand what this place is for. The sanctuary where God's people gather to worship and to pray. So I'm going to read both passages to you and just kind of give you the context of, of what's going on. So the first time that Jesus clears the temple out is in John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It happens right after Jesus' first miracle, which is turning water into wine in Cana. So he's in Cana, and you guys, in fact, I preached on this when we talked about our Christology uh, back in January, I believe. And Jesus turns the water into wine, and he does this amazing miracle. And after the wedding celebration, the Bible tells us that Jesus went to Capernaum and stayed there for a few days, and it was just about the time for the Passover. That's what it says. And then in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, hear the word of the Lord. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers, and he overturned the tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. I say that because there's an exclamation point. So what it says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69.9. My response to what I just read was, wow. Huh? Wow. This is exactly why understanding and having a good ecclesiology is so important. If you get it wrong, it could terribly upset Jesus. I mean, don't you think that... the? I'm going to give you the context of why this all took place, but having that kind of reaction from Jesus tells us something about how important it is for us that when we gather, we, we, we get this right. The last thing we want is for the Spirit of God to come and bam, kick over tables in the temple. But that's what took place right here in John chapter 2. So what I'm going to do is then now look at the second time that this happens. The second time this happens, it happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. Many of you guys know of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem for the last time. It's recorded in all three Gospels. I'm going to read for you from the Gospel of Matthew, turned to Matthew 21. But this very same thing happens in Mark chapter 11 and Luke chapter 19. Same incident. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he comes into Jerusalem for the very last time. It's during the Passover, right? And in Matthew 21, beginning at verse 12, it says this. 
Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. <sighs> Jesus was upset. Clearly, he was one of the few times in the Bible, twice, that we find Jesus' anger coming out, his, his frustration with what is going on. And as a pastor, I just want you to know my heart. I never want to get to this place, right? And so we look at the temple. We look at our own sanctuary, and it's clear that God's design for the temple, God's design for this sanctuary is for it to be a place where the people of God gather to worship and to pray. That's what he said. My house will be called the house of what? Amen. It'll be called the house of prayer. A holy place that's set apart for God to use and for us to use to glorify God. The early church understood the importance of this because you devote yourselves to the things that are important. And not only do you devote yourselves to it, you get good at it. What is important to you? It's the things that you give yourself to, that you devote yourself to, and you get good at it, right? This is what the early church was devoted to. Luke chapter 2, verse 42 tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The church was devoted to that. The church was good at doing these things. And the church took prayer seriously. And you know why the church took prayer seriously? It's because that exactly is exactly what Jesus taught them. That this is important. That prayer is not just something that we try to find time to do, because if we try to find it, we won't. You make time for this. Not only did Jesus teach this, he modeled it. We read in the Bible that Jesus woke up early in the morning and he went off to pray. And when you look at Jesus' life, The two times that I think is the most important for Jesus in his ministry was when he began his ministry and when he finished his ministry. And just before he began his ministry, what did Jesus do for 40 days? He went out into the desert, he fasted, and he prayed in preparation for the great work that God had for him to do. And then that prepared him for the course of the three years of ministry that he was on earth. And then at the end of his time on earth, before he goes to the cross, what do you find Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying again. Jesus modeled prayer. And he taught his disciples how important prayer was. And then the early church, we find, was devoted to prayer. So my hope for my sermon today, church, is that it will invoke in your heart 
a deep conviction that our ecclesiology, our theology of why we're here, and what are we to do when we gather, and the things that are important to God that we accomplish together, that our ecclesiology would be, that we would be devoted to being people of prayer. We would be a church, because the church is people, gathered together to call upon God and pray to Him, to seek His face and know Him more. That is what my hope is that today's sermon will evoke into your hearts. So I have three points that I want to make from the passage of Scripture that I have read for you. They're very clear. We don't have to look too deep into them. It's, it's, it's clear points. And I'd like to share what God put in my heart to share with you today. But the context of everything that is happening in the two passages of Scripture is really important to understand because it applies to everything that we do. The context of what is happening is that in both times that Jesus clears the temple out, it's during the Passover, right? The first time, it was during the Passover. The second time, same thing. It was during the Passover. And the Passover is really important to understand. In this context, it's a celebration for the Jews. What they did was they celebrated their freedom. I mean, we just celebrated Independence Day. Not a couple last Sunday, in fact, we, we did that. And, and they look back on the exodus from Egypt and what took place and God's hand and all of that. And they celebrate that so that this was so important that the, the, the city of Jerusalem had about 20,000 people on a normal day in the days of Jesus. That's what they, they have found. But during the Passover, Jews from all over the known world at the time would return back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And the city that, was, that held 20,000 people would swell to over 200,000 people. It was packed with people. They all came back to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And when you celebrate the Passover, what you do is you, you sacrifice an animal, a, a lamb, a dove. You sacrifice an animal for the forgiveness of your sins and the reconciliation in your relationship with God. And so when people traveled from far, far away, they didn't bring with them their own animals and, and you know, tie a couple of doves and walk with them all the way to Jerusalem. When they got to the city, they would buy the animals there. That, that, that's why the, the, they had the animal, the, the, the animal vendors there. And then, and then you had to... You had to do everything in the economy of Jerusalem. And so they brought all their monies with them, but they, they couldn't use the Roman coins. And so they had to go and exchange their money and, and, and change that out. And so that's why there were money changers there. And so when you look at this, really, the temple allowed this to take place. And they were doing a service of convenience for the travelers who came from very far. That's the context. You see that and you go, oh, now I know why they did that. 
So the question is then, why, why was Jesus so upset? Weren't they doing a, a good thing to help travelers from afar be able to, to worship God the way they knew how to do it, right? Well, let me explain what happened. Along with exchanging money, the, the, the money changers, they, they added a fee to, to every exchange of money that, that took place. The people that came from far away had to pay a temple tax as well, too. And so the temple organized these money changers and these, these animal vendors to take, take place in the temple, and these people began their business that became very lucrative for themselves, for the temple. And not only did they exchange money, but they, they charged an extra fee for it. And, and you know how when you go to the airport, a tuna fish sandwich is 50 bucks? <laughs> because you're a captive audience. And so these, these animal vendors would just jack up the price for all the animals. What should have been something that was easily affordable became unaffordable like eating tuna sandwiches at the airport. And so, what took place really was fraud, corruption, and the exploitation of the poor. They could not come and worship God. They just couldn't afford it when they finally got there. And Jesus, seeing all of this take place, the fraud and the corruption. It's no wonder Jesus says to them, my house should be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. That's exactly why Jesus says what he says. He's mad. He's upset. Oh, and you know what? I would be too. I would be too. It's, it was fraud and a the profit was the motive, and it was the oppression of the poor. So point number one, point number one. In the church, don't commit fraud and oppress the poor. That angers Jesus. Can I get an amen? Yeah, let's not do that, right? Amen. We won't do that. We'll try not to. Because the temple is a holy place where God's people meet with God. It's where God's presence is located in the temple where you bring your sacrifices and you find forgiveness and where you're reconciled back in your relationship with God. And instead of helping people do that, these money changers, these animal vendors who on the outside look like they're doing a great service for the community, they were robbing the You know this whole exchange thing of monies and profit? It's still happening today. Yeah, thankfully not in the church. <laughs> but Rochelle and I just recently went to Europe. And, uh, and when we went to Europe, we had to exchange our dollars for euros. So we went to a bank, and, and there posted on the bank was the exchange rate. One dollar in, in, in America funds 
was, oh, I forget what it was. It was like a dollar and nine for American dollars to a, a one euro, something like that. So was, the euro is stronger than the dollar. You have to pay more dollar to get less euro. And when we made the exchange, right, they charged a fee just to exchange the money. Can you believe that? Well, I'll tell you what happened. When Rochelle got the money and she saw how little we got back, she threw the money right back at the teller. <laughs> Bam! She kicked the table over. She swung her purse. Boom! Knocked over the plants. I grabbed a hold of Rochelle. I said, what are you doing, sweetheart? She looked right at me. She says, Gordon, you keep telling us to be more like Jesus. <laughs> True story. That didn't happen. But it still happens today. You, you see how it's so easy to, to make something like that happen. Do not fraud. Do not commit fraud in the church. That's simple, right? Simple. Reason number two Jesus got so angry is because the money changers and the animal vendors, while it looked like they were doing a great service to the people who traveled from afar. It's easy to see that, right? In reality, they were desecrating a holy space. You see, the purpose of the temple is for the people to meet with God, to worship God, and to do what I'm calling us, my prayer is, that God will work this out in your own heart. But to move people to pray. And the money changers and, and those animal vendors, what they did was they were given the space of the outer court to, to, to create this market. The outer court of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish today, you are a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. And what they did was they took the space where you and I would meet with God and pray to have a market. And the underbelly of what was taking place was that there was fraud and corruption and the oppression of the poor. But more than anything else, (laughs) the desire for profit and the love of money was at the center of it all. The, the, The temple priests were making bank because of the temple tax that was being levied on all of the people. The money exchangers added that extra fee and they lined their pockets. And then the animal vendors, they overcharged for everything and they came out rich. And that desecrates the holy space of God. Matthew chapter 6 verse 25 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in that holy place, money was being elevated over God. And that angered Jesus. It was disgraceful. And Jesus clears the temple because they were desecrating it. And so point number two, the temple is to be a holy place, not desecrated 
the temple or the sanctuary where people meet and gather to worship and pray should be set apart for God's use and not be used in dishonoring ways. That's point number two. All right? We got that. Easy. We do that here. But here's point number three, and I think this is where I think my, my, my greatest challenge to you will be. The third reason Jesus got so upset is a reason we overlook too easily in the life of our church. The third reason God, Jesus got so upset is because of this. You guys ready? Jesus is serious about prayer. Much more serious than we think or give him credit for. You know how I know this? Because not only does Jesus teach it, not only does Jesus model it, but when we read the passages that I read for you, Jesus defends the place of prayer for his people. You know what you defend? You defend the things that are important to you, your family, your country, whatever it is that's important to you, you fight for that space. And that's what Jesus does in these passages of Scripture. And, and we, we easily forget how important prayer is to Jesus. He defends the space that is used for prayer. He doesn't want Gentiles to go without the opportunity to be reconciled with God and grow their relationship with Him. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7 where it says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you, you've turned it into a den of robbers. And what I see in the passage is that when you remove a place of prayer and the opportunity to pray, Jesus defends that because prayer is that important. Jesus. He physically removes all the obstacles from that holy place so that people can reconvene and gather to pray. He's kicking tables. He's pushing people. He gets a cord of whips and he's just he's tearing the place apart. This is, this is Jesus. And this reminds, this tells me how important prayer is to Jesus. And Jesus reiterates that God's house is first and foremost a house of prayer. Thank you. Thank you. This is a house of worship for sure. We should worship God. We can use this house to listen and preach sermons, and that's good also. This place, we gather for fellowship, and we do that well. But let me ask you this question. How are we doing with making sure that this is a house of prayer? We do a lot of stuff here, and that's good, good stuff. You know what? Kind of like making sure that we have animals 
to, to sacrifice when worship time comes so that people can be reconciled with Jesus. Looks good, doesn't it? <laughs> All the stuff that we do here, which is good, but we cannot forget what this place is. This is God's house of prayer. So point number three. Jesus is serious about prayer. Much more serious than we give him credit for. And Jesus will defend his house for the very purpose to pray. And so church, my call is this. That we be people devoted to prayer. That should be a part of our ecclesiology, of what we do and who we are, the theology of the church. And as your pastor, I want to bring a prophetic word to you. I want to be a prophetic voice to you and tell you that I believe that it is God's desire and God's call that we return to being people who are devoted to prayer. The first part of our mission statement of our church is to authentically love God. And my message today to you is to live out that mission. And that when we come to pray, let's not just ask God for things. We do that so well. I do that well. God bless this, help this. And there's so much to ask God for. But what if before we ask for his hand, we seek his face? That we learn how to fall in love with God all over again on bended knees, seeking his face before we ask for anything from his hand. I'm just reminded again and again that Jesus is more serious about prayer than we give him credit for. That in the most important times in his life, when he knew that the end was coming, what did he do? Did he try to do stuff that he didn't get a chance to do yet? You know how we sometimes do that? Ah, I haven't been to Disneyland yet. and We take kids to Disneyland or I haven't done this yet. It's not that. <laughs> in, in the moment when, when Jesus knew that the next day he would not be alive, what did he do? Pray. We are living in a crazy time right now. We can have more church services. I can preach more sermons to you. We can gather for more fellowship. We can worship God greatly. But what would all that do if we weren't on bended knees praying and seeking God? Because I believe that the relationship we have with Him is built the strongest when we get calluses on our knees. So church, today I want to end my sermon with three practical things that we can do as a result of this sermon today of learning about our ecclesiology. First, practical thing we can do. Be a part 
of the prayer that's already going on in the life of the church. You may not know what it is, and that's okay. If you don't know, it's my fault. As a pastor, I need to share this with you. So if you go online to our website, you click on that, I think it's the three bars, and drops down, it says opportunities for prayer. And we list them. On Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., we gather right here in the courtyard, and we pray for the service. We have a QR code that lists all the needs of the church. We pray for the people of the church. We pray for our preschool. We pray for our Sunday school teachers. We pray for, and all this by name, we pray for the staff. Lots to ask. And then we walk through the sanctuary. You know the very seats you're sitting in have been prayed for this morning by a small team of people that came early in the morning and commit themselves to pray because they, you matter to them. But they're taking their time out to pray for every single... And then every stall in the parking lot, we pray for God's presence on the campus of our church. So join us for that. Then we meet again at 845 right here at the Center of Hope where Pastor Paul is. And we pray for our Sunday school teachers before they go. That's Sunday morning. On Monday, Angie Serrano, she leads a prayer group at 12 noon on Zoom. You just click on it, show up, and she's there praying at Monday at noon and Tuesdays at 8.30. Tuesday mornings at 8.30. And then on Wednesday mornings, we gather right here in a little semicircle at 6.30 in the morning, and we pray. And in this time of prayer on Wednesday mornings, we ask God for nothing. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't owe us anything. He's given us everything already. (laughs) All we do is we just thank God seek his face. It's revolutionary. It's beautiful. Come and join us. So, number one, forgive me, uh, Cindy Stockwell leads a 9 a.m. prayer, uh, Moms in Prayer time. And boy, does that pay off well. Our children are coming back to Jesus because people are praying. And if none of those times work for you, then by golly, come talk to me. We'll start one that works for you. <laughs> so that's number one. Join us in the times of prayer that we are. You know what the second thing is? This one is a no-brainer. Pray with your family at home. I hope you're already doing that. Pastor Bob, when he preached a sermon on, on our ecclesiology, he reminded us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence is with us already. We, we don't necessarily need to be here to experience God. He goes with us wherever we are. So when we're at home, we ought to be praying. And can I make an encouragement to you? If, if you're married today and your spouse is here with you or not, will you make a commitment daily pray with your spouse and for your spouse every single day daily that's what daily means right every day pray not just for them and and we do a lot of good praying for people right oh lord help rochelle please right and she prays the same for me we can pray for people but it makes such a difference when you pray with them i teach them i teach this in my premarital counseling class. 
how young couples, as they prepare for a lifetime of marriage, should begin the process of praying for one another so that they can make it a habit for the rest of their lives. And eventually when you have children, my hope and prayer is that you already pray with with your children every night. And that's pretty much a given, I believe. So if you're dating someone or you're engaged, start now. Don't wait till you get married and say, okay, let's pray for one another. Let's pray with one another. Start when you're dating. That's what Rochelle and I did when we were just dating. I'm going to say something to you that I say to my premarital counseling classes that whenever I say it, in Hawaii we say chicken skin. You say goosebumps. (laughs) Gives me chicken skin. I have been praying with Rochelle. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary. But we were engaged for a year and we dated for a year. So we've been praying for 32 years together. Every day. As much as we can. Sometimes we're not together. But when we were dating and we were, she was in Nice Hall and I was in class and I'd pick up the phone and we'd call each other every single night before we went to bed and we'd pray for each other. We did that. You know why? We were devoted to it. And when you devote yourself to something, you get good at it. And now, 32 years later, every night before bed, it's not long. But I know her better than anybody else. And I know what she's going through. And I can pray for her. She knows me better than anyone else. And so she, last night she prayed for me. Lord, speak through Gordon tomorrow in church. And I can tell you right now, I, I know the presence of God is with me. Because for the last 30 years, my wife's been praying for me every Saturday night so that when I come and speak to the church, the presence and power of God is with me. What can you pray for one another? And if you don't, then start, Right? And then pray at the church when the church gathers. Pray at home with one another. For your ch- Start a legacy in your family that maybe you begin now and your kids see what you're doing. And when they get married, they, they're going to want to be like mom and dad and pray with each other and for each other. And their children see that. And years from now, your family has an amazing legacy of prayer because you decided that this is so important to Jesus. Maybe it should be important to us as well. And what's the worst thing that can happen if you start praying together? The third thing, very practical. Start today. God has put something in you. If if anything I have said, you today the altars are open I'd love to close today's service with families coming together praying with and for one another praying for our precious children and so we're going to close today just with a simple prayer as our benediction and as I'm praying if you'd like to come and pray at the altar 
you'd like to just gather in your seats where you're at and pray together, you can do that as well too. And when I say amen, if you need to leave, then I ask that you go quietly to respect those who are seeking God's face before we seek His hand. Working on devoting ourselves to be people of prayer because that is our ecclesiology. And we are in the house of prayer. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your message to us and your son Jesus. And even in those times when he was so upset because we didn't get it right, thinking that we were doing something good. But you have something so much better for us. Oh, Jesus, move in our hearts today to make us a church My hope is that one day when people talk about Mission Church of the Nazarene, they're going to say, oh, that's the church that that prays. If we are known for that, Lord, glory to you. I pray, Lord God, today you would burden our hearts for our children. You would burden our hearts, Lord God, for those in this world that have walked away from you we'd fall on our knees and cry out and ask you, Father in heaven, that you would help us to be people who redeem others back to you. How does that happen? We can't do it on our own. We've got to seek you. So burden us, Lord God. Burden me. Start in me. That's my prayer. presence today with us. Lord God, we love you.